It is Thursday, the 28th of May, and tonight the NRL is back. Welcome to The Briefing. I'm Tom Tilly, and we will be talking about sport. The professionals are going back tonight in rugby league. We'll find out when you local legends can get back on the sporting field. Jan Fran is here, a huge rugby league fan, <laughs> grew up in Western Sydney. I did. I can name at least three different NRL teams, just muscle teams. memory. Yeah, teams. Not players. <laughs> Not players. No, come on. Go easy on me, Tom. All right, we'll talk sport in a moment. First, let's find out what's going on in the world. A warning to young people in Australia who've become a little complacent about the coronavirus. Sadly, a Queensland man has become the youngest Australian to die from the virus that just 30 years old. Nathan Turner's partner found his body after she returned from work to their home in Blackwater in central Queensland on Tuesday. It appears that this uh, this gentleman who has passed away was ill for some time uh, and did not get tested. That was the state's health minister, Stephen Miles, uh, speaking yesterday. Now, he said that Nathan did have some pre-existing medical conditions and uh, that he had been unwell for some time and actually only tested positive after his death. Mm. Now, Miles says that this should be a wake-up call to all blokes and uh, presumably women to get tested if you are not feeling well. How he got it is a mystery. He hadn't left the small town of Blackwater, a small mining town, since February And it's had no confirmed cases, but officials are looking at whether a nurse who broke lockdown restrictions and drove 400 cases to the town before testing positive could be the source. Yeah. Interesting story. It is really a wake-up call to young people to take COVID-19 seriously. It's, It's not just like a bad case of the cold for a lot of people, especially anyone with underlying health conditions. Yeah. And it's just, it, that message has been clear from the beginning. If you have any symptoms, get yourself tested, stay on the safe side, get yourself tested. Yeah. And interesting, he was from such a remote small town and still got it somehow. It'd be really interesting to see how they... Um, Trace that one. Yeah. To see what actually happened there. And in some very good news about us, well, it's not, no, it's not us per se, but one of us anyway, uh, Annika Smethurst, whose dulcet tones you do here on the briefing uh, when I'm not here, will not be charged over a story that she wrote in 2018. Hazard. The AFP's reviewed all available material and determined there is insufficient evidence to progress the investigation in relation to the unauthorised disclosure of the classified document. That was AFP Deputy Commissioner Ian McCartney with some very good news for Annika Smethurst. Her Canberra apartment was famously raided almost a year ago as part of an investigation into how classified documents were leaked to her. Since that time, it's been really hard for her. We heard about it on the podcast a a few weeks ago. She's been living with the threat of jail time hanging over her head. Had many days and still continue to where it all gets too much and I can't laugh about it anymore, although I do laugh about it a lot because I don't know what else to do. Look, there are moments when I think about jail and there is a genuine part of me that I guess prepares for the worst case scenario just in case that does happen. Oh man, you'd just Mm. be living with just this dull roar of anxiety every single day, wouldn't you? Yeah, she was She was saying that she was rethinking when she could buy a house, yeah. travel overseas, get married, all these big life things that sort of had doubt cast over them because she didn't know where her life was going. Well, that means she can get on with her life now, so that's mm. great news. Uh, and the AFP also announced that they will not be pursuing her source either. 
Yeah, the person who leaked her the information. Now, she's written a piece in the News Corp papers today saying how personally relieved she is, um, but she points out the case hasn't done anything to protect journalism, noting that two other ABC journos could still be charged over a raid on the ABC's Ultimo office, which happened a day after hers. Yeah, anyone thinking this is sort of a win for press freedom um, has to remember that Annika was being investigated over a story that she wrote about the expansion of powers to a spy agency Um, allowing them to essentially spy on Australian citizens without a warrant. So the story was very much in the public interest uh, and she she shouldn't have been investigated for it in the first place and certainly shouldn't have had her home and her personal belongings raided in such a way. The other problem with the whole saga is how long it took. So the story was written around two years ago. It took around a year for them to then go and raid her apartment and then another year to finally yesterday announce that they won't be pressing charges. So... Even the Attorney-General has said that that took way too long and this whole thing should have been wrapped up a, a lot quicker and it would have come at a much lower personal cost for Annika and also the other people involved in this story. Good morning, Twitter. Now, I'm not sure what the real story here is, whether it's Donald Trump threatening to shut down social media companies or that one of his tweets finally got fact-checked. Yeah, Twitter's been upping its efforts to stop misinformation and it slapped a link telling users to get the facts on a post that Donald Trump made claiming that mail-in ballots for this year's presidential election will be substantially fraudulent and add up to a rigged election. Now, obviously, elections are something Twitter's extra careful about after Russia meddled in America's 2016 election. Yeah, this is a sentence I feel I say very often. Donald Trump's been tweeting furiously overnight, um, accusing Twitter of interfering with this year's election. Now, he tweeted just a few hours ago, Twitter has now shown that everything we've been saying about them and their compatriots is correct. Big action to follow. Um, It's not been specified exactly what that action is. But I think moving forward uh, in in lead up to the election, you know, this is going to be a sort of ongoing issue, particularly given um, how much slack Facebook copped in 2016 for allowing fake news and misinformation on its platform. It'd be interesting to see what Twitter does and how it handles it. Yeah, fact-checking the president, it's a huge move over something political here. I imagine they might have jumped in about, you know, injecting bleach into people's lungs or something of a, of a public health nature as their first fact-check on the president. I worry that the impact of this might be that it feeds into the narrative that he's being somehow unfairly treated or there's a mainstream media conspiracy to basically bring him down and that only kind of energises his base. And it looks like we are go for launch with NASA and SpaceX ready to launch humans into orbit for the first time on a private rocket. This is the culmination of a dream. This is a dream come true. In fact, it feels surreal. If you'd asked me when starting SpaceX, if this would happen, I'd be like 1%, 0.1% chance. Elon Musk there, pretty excited, or he's still kind of monotone, but you can tell he's excited. (laughs) Yeah, he is quite monotone, isn't he? So the Falcon 9 rocket will blast off from Florida's Kennedy Space Center at approximately 6.30am Australian Eastern Standard Time, taking two astronauts to the International Space Station. So that's early this morning, depending what time you're listening to this podcast, that may or may not have already taken off. Yeah. And look, hey, if a tropical thunderstorm doesn't get in their way, then it's all good, but it might. Uh, So mission managers say that there is a 50-50 chance they'll have to delay. But as far as we know, at the moment, they are pushing ahead. Um, If they can't do it, it'll probably happen on Saturday. Elon Musk, what an amazing man. Like history is going to look back and... 
I'm not sure how history is going to look back on Elon Musk, actually. He's an amazing innovator. Yeah, I mean... The night is young, you know. He's got he's got a few more decades ahead of him. We'll we'll, we'll see what he does in that time. Yeah, so private rockets into space. Um, this could be the start of people being able to basically buy a ticket to space. Pretty huge. I'm I was pretty surprised to hear him say that he thought that there was a one percent or even less of a chance that this would actually happen because he he talked a pretty big game about it. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> he didn't believe it himself. And the NRL is back. And it's not just league fans excited for its return. Yes, it is one of the first footy codes in the English-speaking world uh, to return to playing fields. Now, tonight's match is between the Parramatta Eels and the Brisbane Broncos. And making up for the fact that there will not be a crowd actually in the stadium, the match itself is being broadcast to more than 70 countries. Wow. Yeah, this includes the US, France, Britain, Papua New Guinea and Uganda. Um, So, you know, there is a potential for... Tens of millions of eyeballs. Yeah, it's going to be a massive sporting moment. Um, League officials are expecting a global record audience of people starved for sport, um, and it'll give the league its largest TV ratings in its 112-year history, bigger than Origin. Look out. Maybe it'll convert some soccer fans into NRL fans. That'd be good. That'd be good. All righty. Thank you, Jan. Um, That is what's happening at the elite level of sport tonight, rugby league kicking off. Let's find out what's going on at the sporting grounds near you, and I'm joined by Annika Smethurst. With the NRL kicking off tonight and the AFL in a couple of weeks, we're going to find out what's happening with us local sporting legends, the 11 million Aussies that play organised sport each year. Sure, it's great to see the NRL and the AFL getting back, but frankly, in Australia, sport isn't just something people watch, it's something they participate in, and they particularly do it at a community level. Yeah, Scott Morrison then. Loads of Australians are understandably keen to get back out on the sporting field, but given the close contact and the huge numbers of people involved in sport, could it spark a second wave of infections that undo all of our hard work flattening the curve? We're actually going to have the Deputy Chief Medical Officer on the podcast in just a moment, and we're going to find out whether he thinks we're taking too big a risk with bringing sport back. With lots of restrictions around training starting to ease from Monday, the government have released a really complicated list of the do's and don'ts and COVID protocols for community sport. So there'll be no high fives, you won't be able to have your grandparents on the sideline and the complicated list goes on and on and on. It's going to be a logistical nightmare for sporting clubs who often run on the generosity of volunteers and now have to comply with a very complex bunch of new rules. Yeah, it's going to be really hard, especially for those smaller clubs. So let's see how a Newcastle Aussie rules football team is going about starting training next week. Tim Cotter, head coach at Newcastle City Blues, is with us now. Tim, obviously you're keen to restart games, but what's going on behind the scenes at your club to make sure everybody's ready and safe? Yeah, look, I think you're right, everyone. is super keen to get back involved, but we, we recognise the fact that we need to do it in the right manner. Groups um, can't be any more than 10 people, and that includes coaches. So it's it's a group of nine with a coach, potentially. On a football oval, there are three groups, and they're divided into the three segments of the field. Um, players won't be intermingling between those groups. Once you're in your 10 for that session, then that's your group. It's being asked of players to shower before and after training. Mm. Um, hand sanitise when they turn up to training. Um, they won't be sharing water bottles. They'll be staying within their zone and also maintaining social distance. So one and a half metres between players, even when drills are, are taking place. So in terms of what they can do maintaining that distance, it's just skills-based things. It's just um, using cones, footballs 
and kicking and handballing and marking. Um, no contest, no contact type work. Tim, the federal government says the resumption of sport's going to play a huge role in boosting mental health for Australians, and I'm sure you feel that within your own club. But a lot of those bonding activities like hugging or high-fiving or even hanging out after a game or in the locker rooms, that's all going to be off limits. So how do you think the mood of the game will actually change? You know, I know as my team, we do, for this period, we've been... Um, seeing each other, a lot of each other, and that is online. You know, we've reached out. We're doing. Um, we've had obviously Zoom calls like the rest of Australia. We've been um, doing Facebook watch parties. We had an online um, talent show. Um, we've we've tried to do a lot of things to stay connected as a team. We've all joined Strava clubs, and, and when we do exercise, we give each other kudos and stir each other up. So whilst it is, um, everyone's looking forward to reconnecting. We know that it's not going to be group hugs and high fives, it's going to be controlled environment, um, skills-based, um, just getting a touch back for hopefully the next stage where we may return in a in a more normal manner, which is which is maybe contest drills, tackling, that type of thing. But for us at the moment, that's a little bit further down the track. The main thing of our, our sporting club is we like to remain fit and healthy. And so sports, you know, football is our outlet. Yes, we love playing that game, but just the ability to be able to Training groups of 10 is kind of a pretty good step for us. We're just being patient in terms of moving to that next step, whether it's a month's time, whether it's two months' time. You know, our livelihoods don't depend on it. So whilst we want to get back involved in it, um, we're, not, we're certainly not trying to push the boundaries and make it happen quicker than it needs to happen. Thanks so much for joining us and good luck. Yeah, thanks very much. So that was Tim Cotter there. He's the head coach at Newcastle City Blues. Look, they're trying their best, obviously, to try and make the sport safe. But obviously, there's going to be a huge risk about getting people that close together, you know, in change rooms, breathing on each other, the spitting and all that stuff that goes on on sports fields. So it really raises the questions about for those people that don't play sport, is this going to be put us at greater risk, Tom? Yeah, that's a really important question. We'll get to that with the Deputy Chief Medical Officer Paul Kelly, who joins us now. What do you make of the way clubs like the Newcastle City Blues are getting back to training? I think we all want to get sport back on the field. Rebooting has been used as the name, which <laughs> works for some sports, but I not like all. It. Certainly the way they're, they're planning to do it or, or currently doing it, that's great. Um, really taking on the, that advice so that the benefits can be realised and the risks can be minimised. As you say, Professor Kelly, we all want to get it back out there. It's great for people's mental health, but obviously there's an inherent risk in sport. We're a lot closer with each other. We're huffing and puffing. I just wondered if you could talk us through some of, I guess, the science behind that. You know, what is the risk of spreading these sort of viruses when you are on a sporting field as opposed to just walking down the street? The reality is we've got very few cases in Australia now. Um, and so that's the first thing. We've, we've controlled the virus to the point where it's highly unlikely that if you leave your house, you're going to come across someone who's sick at the moment. And that's a very different position to most other countries in the world. I, I had a um, Zoom meeting with uh, colleagues at CDC in Atlanta in the US today, and they they were very uh, impressed with how we've gone and where we're up to in Australia and really would prefer to be in our position than, than in theirs. So, of course, all of those uh, physical distancing measures that we've talked about, the hygiene measures um, and so forth, they still remain in place, but we are trying to get people out and about more. So when we come to sports, a um, couple of the things you mentioned there, the huffing and puffing, um, no clear evidence about huffing and puffing being more uh, risky than others, although we do have some similar evidence. So there was a very large choir outbreak in the US um, a few weeks ago where one person was sick and 86% of the of the choir became sick over wow. over the next week. 
obviously many sports, most sports really, I guess, do re- require or lead to some sort of quite close contact. And so that does increase the risk. The hygiene measures and so forth, um, minimising the numbers of people on the pitch for the moment are part of that mitigation. And so that's the, the general information we're giving back to sports. So Professor Kelly, you've touched on there that we've all been in hibernation and we're all coming out and people might be a bit apprehensive or need a reminder of how you can catch this. So if I can throw some scenarios at you, say a player spits on an oval in a game, that player has COVID, how long would that last? Or can you catch it in a public swimming pool? You know, how long does the virus survive in these sort of sporting environments? So it's a very good question. Um, The pool itself is very safe as long as the pool is, is kept well and the chlorine levels are up to the, the, the Australian standard, that kills the virus very quickly. So the risk of actually swimming is virtually zero. Having a big crowd in a change room, uh, if particularly if it hasn't been cleaned recently, that could be an issue. So, so our advice specifically for pools is at the moment in the first phase, uh, limit it to um, one person per lane and uh, try to minimise your time when you're at the pool but not in the pool. Uh, in terms of spitting on a on an oval, yeah, spitting is a thing. It's really said <laughs> in the elite sport We spit more than we realise. It's like touching <laughs> our faces. So I'll, I'll take the example of cricket, for example, where they, they, they have actually in their proposal for cricket coming back, and you, you might have heard this on the media, but uh, even in the internationals, they've, they've essentially banned using spit to polish the ball. So I don't know if that will lead to... Other ways of polishing or roughing <laughs> up, but uh, uh, but anyway, so that that's a very specific example. I think spitting on the on the oval, um, there have been some um, studies that have been done about how long the virus can survive outside the body on different surfaces. I don't think anyone's actually done grass as such, but um, it is you know in the range of hours to even days on some surfaces. But that's in a very experimental environment. What we've found in general uh, around the world is that mostly the virus is spread from person to person through what we call droplet spread, so it goes through the air. So essentially I breathe out, you breathe in, that's how it gets spread. And so it can at least theoretically be spread by what we call fomites, which is um, someone spits or someone coughs and those droplets fall on on a surface, Um, but we don't think that's a major uh, component. So, main thing for sports is wash your hands before you start. If there's a chance to use some alcohol gel, you know, at halftime or another break, do that. Uh, certainly do that if you're passing around the oranges. And the same at the end. Uh, make sure you wash your hands after you've finished, and that that will help uh, to a certain extent. Uh, and then the other crucial thing, absolutely crucial thing, and we've re- been very clear on this with our feedback to the sports is sick people don't play. Paul, um, Annika and I are frothing so hard to get skiing and there's been a lot of news around that in the last few weeks. Tell us what the real risk factors are. I imagine the risks are around huge groups of people lining up for chairlifts and then potentially sharing chairlifts. What are the key considerations there? So skiing is an interesting one. We, we um, the One of the largest cluster outbreaks that we've had in Australia was related to people coming back from a ski holiday in the US. And that gave it, the whole uh, thing a bad name, didn't it? <laughs> that's right. Uh, so that's been repeated through the US and, uh, and right throughout Europe. Some of the yeah. early cases in Germany were people that had been in ski holidays in northern Italy. 
Um, a lot of the northern Italian outbreaks appeared to have been linked somehow to ski resorts. So, so it's a big issue. But I think you're right there, Tom. It's the issue. The, and I, yes, I absolutely want to get back on the skiing as well. <laughs> Good to know that you're mate. involved. We've got one on the inside. <laughs> think about it. You know, well, you're both skiers, and people can, I'm sure, listening to this will will be able to imagine. Um, compare the kind of personal protective equipment we've seen uh, in hospitals and what is generally the case on ski fields. So everyone's got goggles yep. and they're covered head to toe with other other things and they're wearing gloves. Yeah. Uh, that sounds very similar, doesn't it? Yep. Um, now, of course, the, the type of coverings that you get with a balaclava or, or, or a neck warmer or, or whatever is not as efficient as, as the, the standard masks that are used. But it's not bad. So I, I think actually the risk on the slopes itself, um, and you can yeah you can imagine um, separating people a little bit on lines, although that would be tricky. Certainly the proposal which we have seen from the from the ski associations is um, is to minimise the number of people on chairlifts, so maybe half them. You know, perhaps having less people on the slopes, so you can you can book a specific day, but there'll be a maximum. It's mainly the issue of the apres ski, the the stuff that happens after the skiing. It's the dormitory style accommodation and the uh, large parties and pubs and and so forth that's more the issue rather than um, what happens on on the skiing itself so that was the deputy chief medical officer professor paul kelly sounding reasonably relaxed and upbeat they were they were sounding a lot more stressed about a month ago weren't they Annika? yeah it's actually good to hear it's reassuring isn't it when somebody of his stature sort of says that going out in the community whether it's sport or just going to the shops you know a lower risk and some good news for us there too tom <laughs> ski slopes looking like they'll reopen yeah um good to hear that he thinks it's relatively low risk on the mountain i think there'll be kind of easy things to wind back in the village um the partying etc as long as you can get out there, that's really what it's about. So we'll see how that unfolds in, in the coming weeks as well as the rest of those community sports that are navigating those those tricky rules but also watching people rub up against each other non-stop on TV as elite sport goes back. Hopefully no outbreaks so we can all get back on the court soon. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're talking about managing your money through COVID-19, which means you might get some advice that will actually put more money in your pocket. Why wouldn't you listen to that? All right. Thank you so much for listening to The Briefing today. I'll catch you tomorrow. A Podcast One production.